what may end up happening is that the industrial firms, they could sort of play the Exxon Valdez card. I am Reese Tisdall, and this is Future of Water, which we talk about all the ways which companies, utilities, and people are addressing the challenges and opportunities in water. This is episode 84. I think it's going to be a good one. Why? Because I'm joined today by senior analyst from Bluefield, Amber Walsh. So as many of you have heard her on the podcast, and I think I've mentioned her name other times, she spends a great deal of time analyzing uh, water management uh, and wastewater management across multiple industries. Uh, She also takes little deep dives into things like corporate sustainability, on-site reuse, market trends and forecasts uh, across a number of sectors, whether it be data centers and semiconductors to pulp and paper and food and beverage, among others. But before I bring Amber into the conversation, like I did last episode, that was episode 83 with Charlie Seuss, I thought I'd share some news once again at the request of my colleague. So that being said, let's jump into one news item I came across this week that I thought was interesting. And then uh, I will uh, bring Amber into the conversation. So let's hit it. So rumor has it, or the facts are stating that Venice is sinking, but also Rotterdam, Bangkok, and New York are also sinking, but no place apparently, according to Bloomberg News, is sinking faster than Jakarta. Uh, As I was telling colleagues last week, solutions to overdrawing aquifers is really becoming a big opportunity uh, that I'm not sure everybody's quite ready for from Long Island to Jakarta. It's going to cost money. It's going to take time, but also if it doesn't happen. We're going to have bigger problems. So in the case of Jakarta, that is Indonesia over the past 25 years, the hardest hit areas of the capital have subsided more than uh, 16 feet. The city has until 2030 to figure out a solution. So they say, or it's going to be a little too late to hold back to Java Sea. As of now, one in three Jakartans don't have access to piped water. So they're instead relying on thousands of illegal wells that are all you know scattered all over the city, depleting aquifers, basically creating land subsidence. But also, I think their bigger question or bigger issue facing these coastal cities, as we're starting to see in other areas, including places like Florida, that uh, saltwater intrusion becomes a real thing. And then once you start having that, then your water, drinking water quality from any groundwater is questionable at best. And then you're going to have to treat it no matter what. So um, PT Air Bercy Jakarta, which is the firm that's been tapped to expand water pipe access to 11 million residents. So basically they're, what they're trying to do by 2030 is to connect uh, all the city's residents to more centralized systems to the extent they can. So ABJ's new contract includes rights to operate five of the biggest water treatment plants and to sell more of its uh, treated water supply through uh, 2048. So it's a big contract and reportedly there's no downside to ABJ. The uh, company stands in net around for almost $5 billion from the deal. So lucrative, but it raises a lot of questions. So why Bluefield do we care? Well, Quite honestly, Jakarta doesn't have enough money to manage the water system alone. This is not unique. Uh, We see this all over the world, not only in places like Southeast Asia, but also North America. There are lots of cities that are having financial problems and getting squeezed, whether it be a big system or small system. The city, in the case of Jakarta, they are looking for a private partner. So they've tapped into private partners and they do have a history of this. 
that have raised a lot of questions in the past and so a lot of pushback. So companies like Moya and Aquatico, but also Suez and Tim's Water out of Europe have also managed water systems in the country. And there's been some sell-offs of those concessions um, back and forth. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out with the ABJ. But there are also a number of approaches, quite honestly, being deployed globally to address overdrawn aquifers. One, and first and foremost in my mind, is reclaiming and reusing wastewater that in many cases um, can be, it's already being treated in many cases to potable standards. So this definitely reduces demand on aquifers um, and it's just more efficient use of, of water, right? You're already treating. But also in the case of Jakarta, fixing the leaking pipes where non-revenue water is as high as 40%. So that's basically 40% of every gallon or liter, depending on your measurement, doesn't matter, um, is being lost. So not only does this reduce available supply, it just costs money to pump and treat. It seems kind of silly. I don't think anybody in our personal lives would do anything like this, but yet we're okay with, uh, with water utilities doing this and, you know, not willing, we're not willing to pay for it. So it's not just the waste, but also if everybody's concerned about carbon and carbon emissions, well, guess what? I've said it before, approximately 2% of greenhouse gas emissions originate from the water sector. And it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but I would like everybody to think about all the news that they read about air transportation. It's the same. The water sector's greenhouse gas emissions are essentially the same as air traffic or uh, aviation. So instead of just talking about using biofuels for planes, why don't we start talking about water and wastewater utilities becoming more carbon neutral, if you will. So uh, why not water? So the opportunities abound and they're not just in Jakarta, they're everywhere. So I thought this was an interesting news item. Great uh, find in Bloomberg News that I saw that I thought everybody would be interested in. A little farther afield in Southeast Asia. So with that being said, let's bring Amber in the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about industrial water. All right. So I'm joined here by Amber Walsh. Amber, how are things? Good. How are you? Uh, pretty good. It's the holiday season. I think we're, you know, I, I feel I may have said this on the podcast before, but once you hit Thanksgiving, it feels like we're living in two worlds. We're trying to close out this year. There's a lot of research happening and then it's also planning for next. So it's never the happiest of times. It's just a lot going on. But that being said, let's make it happy. All right. So Amber, in addition to, you know, you've been digging into industrials and trends, whether it be market forecasts or industries and a number of different industries, you also provide clients with quarterly analysis of things to look out for. So every quarter you're digging into data, you're digging in the news, talking to people when it comes to industrial water management. So let's just start from the top. You just released a a quarterly insight on this for clients. So what are your what are some of your takeaways from this past quarter and what are some of the highlights? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so just to start with kind of a brief ev- overview of what we saw this quarter, I'm sure we'll get into the details uh, throughout this conversation. But first, PFAS, uh, we hear about it all the time, especially in the municipal market, but it's also applicable to industrial. Uh, we've also been keeping tabs on an evolving market uh, in pulp and paper, direct lithium extraction, and also mobile water treatment. 
uh, we continue to track corporate sustainability efforts. Uh, so largely focused on lighter industries as tech companies, they're rolling out pretty interesting strategies to help meet their water sustainability goals as their water usage is rising. And then finally, we looked at M&A, so key deals involving pump manufacturers and also looking at advanced water treatment for semiconductor fabs. So, well, I mean, I know there are a number of different things you looked at, whether it be policy-wise, like you, you mentioned M&A, um, things like PFAS and just sort of market shifts overall. So why don't we, I think... If I recall, and I'm going by memory, looking back, I think you had like six key takeaways at the top of your quarterly quarterly review or insight. So what, what was most interesting? Like what jumps out to you if, if you had to maybe at, uh, over the holidays at, at dinner when you're sitting around with your family, like, hey, what's going on at work? What are you going to tell them? What's most interesting to you, at least in this quarterly? Yeah, definitely. So personally, I'm very interested in sustainability initiatives. So I think that's definitely what I'll be bringing up at uh, the holiday table. But like I mentioned, we're keeping tabs of what companies are doing, whether it be partnerships, projects to meet their water goals. And we're seeing a rise of public-private partnerships for water projects. So these industrial companies are partnering with water utilities and counting that water usage that they're saving the water utility towards their corporate sustainability target. So that's been interesting to see because they have the industrial companies have more capital. And so it's it's pretty beneficial to both the municipality and the, the corporate. So an example that we've been seeing is Microsoft partnering with Fido Tech to install AI leak detection. So this has been rolled out in Phoenix, Arizona, London, Mexico, and the water loss that's saved, that's going to count towards Microsoft's water positive goal. Yeah, so it's interesting to see that. I mean, I know that was something. Remember, we did a research note on this. I think there were a digital water service a while back, and that was one of the points that someone reached out to me separately asking specifically about that. They thought that was really interesting about how they were managing it. I mean, I guess it is a bit of, it's almost like a portfolio approach, right? Sort of like buying carbon credits to offset. They're doing different things uh, in this case. Microsoft's partnering specifically with these utilities, which I think is interesting. So I like that one. So how about another one? What's what's another takeaway from the quarter? Another interesting market is the mobile water treatment market. And we did a research note on this uh, with Najee House Sour Industries. So a quick plug for that if you want to go, go look at that. Um, but so... NSI, they've been building out their mobile water treatment fleet and their strategy for that has been pretty interesting as they've capitalized on different restructurings of companies to get mobile water treatment units, whether it be uh, Danaher spinning out Veralto and they acquired containerized solutions from that. And then also when Fiolia and Suez were combining, they got units from that. So their strategy was to kind of target these uh, changing companies. So that was cool. And it is interesting to see that these containerized solutions, they can treat things like PFAS. And then it's also, um, they can improve reuse. So there's different applications for them. It's interesting to see like the, you know, I'm 
truth be told, for the listeners, I'm working with a couple of colleagues on some uh, analysis of some recent decentralized water mobile treatment deals. Like, I mean, there's always the, the sour has been really active with Nyhouse is how they're saying it, but I should ask my son, one of his closest friends is Dutch. So I should ask him exactly how to pronounce it. So apologies for any mispronunciations on our end for, for Nyhouse. So SAR has been active. And then also Cambrian was just acquired as well by Pennybacker Capital. So that was sort of another reason we've been looking at it more recently. And so watching what's happening from decentralized treatment, it also partly ties into your previous point, and that is corporate sustainability, what are companies doing? So the gen- our general rule of thinking of Bluefield has been over time is, you know, is this decentralized reuse or on-site water management going to happen at greater scale for corporates or industries and even sort of commercial, whether that be college campuses and maybe even hospitals. And our take is yes. One, you know, these organizations have a bottom line, which obviously is, is a driver Two, they're facing operational risk, right? They're, they're not immune to the news and climate. And also, you know, when it comes to if they're tied or hooked up to the municipal water and wastewater service providers, the rates are going up in some cases, particularly on the wastewater side. So like food and beverage, I know you look a lot at that, but rates are rising, you know, so if you're, let's say a brewery or a food and beverage company, you know, and you, you're delivering high BOD, TSS, you know, suspended solids to the water utility, you know, they're, in some cases, they may be increasingly overwhelmed. So you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over time. But we see corporate sustainability is also a big driver behind that, where they can sort of take control of it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, definitely. I completely echo what you're saying. And also, it is another aspect of this is that's interesting is the investment piece that these mobile units are attractive to investors because the vendor's maintaining the ownership of the asset and then it's easily removed when the contract's terminated. So it it kind of eliminates that risk in a sense. And then on the corporate side, there isn't that capital investment if you're leasing or doing that water as a service model, which is another cool aspect to it. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, even before Bluefield Research, when I and my colleagues, some of which are here at Bluefield, uh, we worked in the renewable power space. And one of the things we were looking at, in addition to just sort of wind and concentrating solar power, but also solar PV, and there was the emergence in 06, 07, 08, memory is hazy at this point, but looking at the solar service provider model. And I think that's always been, I know that private equity in particular has been looking at decentralized solutions as an opportunity and there are a number of reasons why it worked in solar. One, it, quite honestly, it's it kind of a little bit simpler as far as sort of execution and you know the economies of scale are a little bit better. One, once the price of solar modules went down, it's kind of the same thing from house to house. In the case of water, there are challenges, however. One is sort of there's variable water, wastewater, sort of the raw material you know, what needs to be treated. They're different, you know, you have to, in many cases, you may have to repipe. But that's why I think the larger commercial and or industrial facilities kind of make more sense. You do get some scale there. And that's why you're seeing companies like 
I mean, looking at sort of the quarterly, but also some of the research we've been doing, like I said, you've got Pennyback Capital, H2 Innovation, who was just acquired, I believe it was a Blue Wolf who acquired H2 Innovation. Ember. Ember, sorry. It was at the same time as the Synexon deal. I think I actually talked about this even on the podcast, but Ember acquired H2 Innovation. H2 Innovation has mobile treatment solutions as well. So we do see a real opportunity. The one thing in looking at the research, and I'm hopefully not talking too much about this, but I do get excited about it, is one of the advantages of the solar service provider model, there was and still is a reliable long-term federal tax incentive. Right. So you get tax credits for rolling these out, which was kind of quite honestly universal. So even if I want to install solar myself on my house, I can get a federal tax credit as long as I have a tax burden, which unfortunately I do. And, you know, I get a tax credit. And there are also state incentives. That doesn't hasn't happened in water, at least systematically in that regard. That is something actually we were working not long ago on with a client specifically trying to understand, you know, what would be the impact and what are the potential implications of some form of tax credit or tax incentives across the water sector to drive things like such as this. It would drive industrial, more advanced industrial reuse and treatment. Maybe you just stick to the wastewater side. Maybe you just stick to industrials, but it will drive private investment because there's it further adds to sort of the ROI, admittedly, um, of making these investments. Like you said, the upfront capital cost, let's say, of a Cambrian system can be high, right? But once in, they're actually unique in that they have their energy and power, you know, their WEPA, WEPA model where they're basically charging a flat fee or a, a known fixed fee over time for not only the water treatment, um, but also the energy piece of it as well. So I don't mean to steal your thunder, but I think this is a really interesting space. And I know, and I'm encouraging people at Bluefield, the analysts and research team to uh, dig deeper into this as we go into, um, into 2024. So um, be on the lookout for more research and analysis on that. So, all right. So let's uh, get back on track, Amber. That was for those who don't know, that was definitely a, uh, we ran off the rails there for a minute. So what's next? So PFAS, I I mentioned it first off, but it does have an impact on industry and it is a growing concern for industrial facilities on who's going to be liable. So industries of specific interest are chemicals, pulp and paper, textile mills, and semiconductor manufacturers as they deal with PFOS in their discharge. And we have continuous conversations with water solution providers just to get a pulse on what's going on. And every time recently when we've asked, like, what are key trends going on, PFOS is is always brought up. So It's definitely a a challenge facing the industry and a lot of unknowns as well. And so we've also heard that facilities that don't directly use PFOS are concerned as well because a lot of them are connected to a municipality and there's PFOS in that water and then they may become liable for it because it's going through their facility and then they may have to remove it in their Uh, wastewater effluent. So lots of different things going on. And it'll be definitely interesting to see how this plays out and 
who's going to be liable and what technology uh, is adopted. And there's just a lot to, to keep an eye on. Yeah. The, the, uh, I guess concerns around CERCLA and how uh, PFAS and these forever chemicals are going to be labeled for lack of a better way to put it, whether they're going to be hazardous or not is a real concern. And it seems quite honestly ludicrous that a water or wastewater utility should be held liable for PFAS that they didn't put any of these in the environment. They're just basically a pass-through mechanism. And I was at the EPA offices a month or so ago. And, you know, as someone made the comment that these utilities, actually they're the biggest sort of aggregators of forever chemicals just by nature of their position so there they are, and then they're going to potentially be stuck holding the bag. My question to the person yesterday was like, this is crazy. This can't happen. And I think the issue is when it comes to that is what may end up happening is that the industrial firms, they could sort of play, as was noted, the Exxon Valdez card and that um, you just keep using the courts and the judicial system to keep kicking the can down the road. So um, basically using discounted cash flows and, you know, you can, if, as long as you can keep pushing those costs out over time and the savings in the near term, you can pay for the liability down the road, even if you ultimately are liable, but it, it's could be a real problem that cities, states, utilities are going to be facing. And I think they're real concerns, but also to add context on the recent EPA actions, which were finalized in October 2023, there's the Toxic Substance Control Act rulemaking requires manufacturers back to industry, those manufacturers of PFAS and PFAS containing articles to report to EPA on the use, production volumes, disposal, exposures, hazards. And so that and the toxic release inventory rulemaking, which removes a de minimis exemption that previously allowed facilities to avoid reporting on PFAS use and low concentration. So there is an aim to increase transparency of it. There's a lot to be happening. And then I'll add one more thing as I keep running my mouth. And that is, I was just asked by, shout out to Tom Freiberg at uh, Atlantean Media. He just reached out to us and hopefully we can deliver. But that is, what's the prediction for PFAS? I think it'd be even beyond the U.S. globally in 2024, what can we look out for, whether it be policy-wise, but also what's happening with these industrial firms. There are more lawsuits in the making, you know, on top of the, I think it was 10 or $12 billion that uh, settlement that 3M just agreed to. I think there's more coming down the pipe. So be on the lookout for that. I think that'll come out at the start of the year. So I know our team, in, particularly in Europe, We'll be helping out on that. So, all right. So for the sake of time, Amber, let's, um, this is fantastic. So what I'd like to sort of, you know, if you have any thoughts or analysis on, we'll leave the other takeaways to the quarterly for the clients, but also if any listeners are interested, just to let us know, and maybe we can uh, set up a conversation and talk about it. I'm in all seriousness. We're happy to do that. We like talking to people. Even post-COVID, we still uh, like to talk to people, even face-to-face. So before I let you go, there's one thing that you do look at every quarter, and maybe you can give us an idea of like top-line industrial figures. What is industrial production or and or water? What are the water impacts overall? So 
what does it look like? You track that quarterly and provide exhibits even. So what's your take on that? Yeah, definitely. So we look at OECD uh, Industrial Production Index, and in August 2023, it was 1.3% lower than a year prior. Um, So we've seen that manufacturing has seen marginal declines in production output, limited new orders, weaker demand, but we are also seeing improved delivery times and stronger supply chains. So not all negative. Um, And then we look specifically here at the U.S. on um, sales in industries, and we've seen an average of about 10% declines year over year across 10 key sectors. So again, not all that positive um, with two key sectors, petroleum and coal products and mining, seeing declines over 29%. So uh, it has signaled significant slowdowns in these heavy industries, but it is also important to note that this data is slightly lagged. Uh, This was Q2, so hoping for more positive trends uh, in the coming months. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, it's, you know, obviously inflation's coming down. There are sort of employment numbers, at least in the U.S., that are showing sort of softening a little bit, but you never know. I mean, Ukraine, Russia is still going. Now we've got what's happening in the Middle East. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, the the lag effect doesn't give us full visibility into exactly where we are right now, but things do seem a little bit more settled. And I think as a result, and also China, I don't want to leave out China, what's happening there. You know, they're sort of, you know, they've been slowing a bit as well, but it's a holiday season. So people are buying stuff. Um, it's a new year. I think mentally, I think people are sort of optimistic to 2024 and talking to someone a while back, um, the expectations were that M&A, now that inflation seems to be under control, I don't think we're getting any more rate hikes. Um, that's still sort of looming out there. Cost of capital is pretty expensive, but the things will be pretty busy in starting in early 2024. So we're optimistic. And to to keep things to end on more of a positive note, we are seeing uh, facility announcements continue to roll out uh, automotive manufacturing, uh, battery manufacturing for electric vehicles, data centers. We see announcements of those a lot, food and bed facilities. So there are new uh, production facilities and and lots of spend, capital spend happening there. Yeah, it depends on quite honestly, what you read. Sometimes they'll say like, oh, all these battery manufacturing facilities, they're going to they're gonna crush us. Why is the federal government paying for this? But at the same time, you know, there are new facilities and there is a shift happening. There is sort of a, the energy transition is real in many ways. So, well, Amber, not to drag it out anymore because otherwise they're just going to hear me talk. Thanks for uh, thanks for stepping up, particularly on short notice. Um, for those who don't know, I did sort of you know, reach out to Amber not all that long ago and asked her, and she happily uh, and willingly joined this conversation. So, thanks a million for this, Amber, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Great, thank you. Cheers. All right, that was fantastic to have Amber on, and. Uh, Hopefully I didn't steal the show. I have, have a lot to say, particularly about things like mobile treatment, but um, just let everyone know the holidays are coming up. So the schedule at Bluefield is going to be, I guess, a little lighter. So admittedly, logistics are getting tough for 
things like the Future of Water podcast, but I wanted to give everybody a heads up that we're planning on sharing some more insights into the EU market, the trends, area of growth, drivers, reuse. Uh, we've done a lot of research on that. We actually put out a reuse report not all that long ago um, on Europe, not only competitive analysis, but also market forecasts and, and sizing. And then our CapEx forecast for Europe is about to be rolled out. So be on the lookout for that. And I'm going to see next week if I can do a recording with uh, Keith Hayes and Chloe Meyer out of Europe to uh, share their insights, not only on what's happened this year, but also what, what to look forward to in 2024. So be on the lookout for the next Future of Water podcast. So before we sign off here in Boston, Barcelona, and are in the holiday spirit, maybe. Let us know, and we'd enjoy the opportunity for a meeting and maybe even break bread. Uh, let us know. I'm always happy to do it. Secondly, please give us a review. They really, really help. They help um, people know that actually people are listening to us and the feedback is positive. I can't tell you how many emails over the last six months we've gotten saying, hey, we heard you on the Future Water podcast. And also, it is a holiday season. Wanted to give a shout out to uh, Dave McGimsey and the Water Values podcast. Uh, we've been partnering with Dave on that for some time, helping him uh, with that show, distribute his newsletter, and and host it. So, and I get to go on once a month. So, give a listen to the Water Values podcast uh, with Dave McGimsey. That's an age old podcast in the water sector, and uh, he's I think he's upwards of two hundred and fifty episodes. I've lost track. We're at 84, so he's been at it for a while. And lastly, if you have any uh, topic ideas you'd like us to discuss, let us know at waterexperts.bluefieldresearch.com. Uh, we're doing this for you. And as always, tell a friend about it. So this podcast and these water industry insights have been brought to you by the one and only Bluefield Research. To learn more about us, visit us at bluefieldresearch.com. Till we talk again, be well, be safe, and take care.